Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our last episode where I, Jess, interviewed our founder, Marcus Honeysett, about his life and ministry and how living leadership came to be. If you didn't get a chance to hear that episode, do check it out. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you another talk from our archives. Today's audio was recorded live at the 2010 Pastoral Refreshment Conference. It's a standalone talk by John Risbridger on Psalm 32. As this audio was recorded live at one of our earliest conferences, it isn't perhaps as high quality a recording as you may expect, but we do hope you're still able to glean much from this challenging and encouraging talk on Psalm 32. Let's just take a moment of quiet, shall we, and uh, open our hearts and lives to God who comes and speaks to us. The God in whom no sin is found. The God who burns with holy fire. Yet the God whose power comes when his people hear his word and receive it into their souls. Lord, we want to do that this evening. We want to experience your power. We want to hear and receive your words. We want to encounter your abundant grace. Come, Spirit of God, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please keep Psalm 32 open uh, in front of you. I want to begin by just telling you about a a conference I was at years ago. This conference is a little bit like this one. It was a, a, a leadership conference, but... Most of the people who were there were students and graduates. I was working with UCCF at the time. And after the first evening session, just when we were all kind of settling in, one of my colleagues came up to me and uh, said, "Uh, John, do you know about Matt? Matt isn't his name. Okay, that's a kind of stage name for this evening. Well, I didn't really know too much about Matt. I knew that Matt was uh, one of the outstanding Christian students of his year. I knew he was keen, he was gifted, he was cool, he was popular, and that he was a leading light in his particular Christian union. I knew that. But my colleague told me that Matt had a secret that he was keeping (laughs) from just about everybody else. He and his Christian girlfriend were sleeping together. And although he'd come on this conference as an aspiring leader, he'd also come terrified that his girlfriend was pregnant. Matt knew that the situation was damaging for him. And of course it was a situation full of anxiety. What if the pregnancy happened? But he was in that place where he didn't feel strong enough to do anything about it. In that situation where it felt worse to ask for help because that would mean exposing it all, than just keeping his head down and going with the flow. The best option, he thought, 
was cover up. The only trouble was, bit by bit, the cover up was destroying him. Because it does, doesn't it? And whatever our particular role in ministry may be, I suspect that most of us recognise the temptation, the pressure to cover up. Don't you? Let me give you a trivial example. At the end of a service, after I have stood on our rather chilly door, shaking the hands of innumerable people and talking to them and smiling and all those kinds of things, uh, quite often at the end, I nip into the church for me to wash my hands. That might feel a bit idiosyncratic, but I'm about to go and have lunch, and you don't know what's there after shaking <laughs> so many hands. And so I nip into the loo to wash my hands. Uh, the only thing is there's this great big mirror just in front of the hand basin in our church loo. Standing there washing my hands, and sometimes I look up, and you know, the awful thing is, the ministerial smile is still there. <laughs> Do you know that smile? You know, it's, it's full, of course, of, uh, of, of, of warmth and of pastoral empathy and of greeting, but in that smile, there's also just that edge of angst because I've forgotten your name again. <laughs> And because there's a big queue of people there, and really, I hope you're not going to stay too long because I do want my lunch, whatever I've got in my hand. Do you know the ministerial smile? And I see it in my face. I think, John, you've not really been authentic, have you? Not really. I wonder if you recognize that in yourself. The pressure to cover up, to project an image to those to whom you minister that is out of step with the reality of your heart. And sometimes if you're lying, I feel that pressure. I suspect many of us here do. And of course, Psalm 32 comes out of a situation of cover-up, doesn't it? We're not sure, but probably it was David's sin with Bathsheba, which of course famously he had tried to cover up with the murder of her husband, Uriah. But when he gets to write Psalm 32, the attempt to cover up is gradually destroying David's. 33 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Not a happy place to be, is it? Trying to live with cover-up. It never is. Think of my friend Matt, trying to hold on to his secrets, sharing it with nobody. But think of us too with those areas of denial with which we live, those bits of our lives, closed off to other people, sometimes closed off to ourselves, because denial does that, doesn't it? And most tragically of all, closed off to God, or so we imagine. We think we're protecting ourselves, but inwardly we're destroying ourselves. Because, of course, when we cover up, we embrace the darkness of unreality deep in our psyche. And we find ourselves, like David, diminished, joyless, exhausted. The New Living translates verse 4, David's strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Have you been there? Trying to cover up. It's hard work. And your strength is gone. Augustine called the Psalms a mirror to the soul. I wonder how many of us find as we read Psalm 32, we are, we are seeing ourselves in the mirror. 
On the outside, we're as keen as the person next to us. But inside, frankly, we're a mess. Our joy is gone. Our energy is sapped. Inwardly, we're wasting away because we're trying to cover up. Trying desperately to hold everything in. Because we think that covering it all up, buttoning it all down, will be less painful than opening it up to God. And perhaps a dear friend. Maybe it's obvious sin, as it was in David's case. Maybe it's the kind of sins that we evangelicals like to pretend are not really sins, like bitterness. Or a deep, weary, spiritual indifference. Maybe for you, maybe for me, passionate commitment to Jesus is frankly a thing of the past. And your public Christian life sometimes feels a bit of a shame. But you can't say so to anybody. Just be too painful. How can David's story help us in this psalm? Well, the great thing about Psalm 32 is this is the moment when the cover-up ends, isn't it? Where we find David facing reality. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. David facing reality. A while back, I um, had this horrible toothache. This is a pathetic illustration, by the way, but it'll do. <laughs> um, and as you know, for us men, toothache can be quite a big deal, a bit like flu and things like that. I had a man flu recently, by the way. And I had this toothache and felt very sorry for myself and milked it for all the sympathy I could get and thought by giving up chocolate and cleaning my teeth a little bit more, maybe, maybe, maybe I'd be able to pull through this toothache. But of course, it didn't work. And eventually, had to go and see the dentist. She looked at it, big crack down the middle. And then she sent me upstairs, which was fairly scary, because upstairs was one of her colleagues who was a big dentist. <laughs> Most of the world looks fairly big to me, but this man, <laughs> this man was seriously big, and to be honest, he looked pretty mean as well. And he was the one that was going to take the tooth out, and he tugged and prodded and grumps and groans, and eventually out it came. It wasn't a pleasant experience, but the relief when that broken tooth was gone was immediate and enormous. And of course, I thought, why on earth did I take so long? Why hadn't I spared myself all the pain? Why pretend all this time? Why not go and get this sorted out? A little bit more seriously, many of us in ministry have experienced that situation when you're working alongside a colleague, perhaps a colleague of the opposite sex, and, and you find them just a bit too attractive. I've been there a couple of times. And you battle with your thoughts, such a struggle, feel utterly ashamed of yourself. And you try and just keep going without telling anybody. Well, I've got a fantastic wife. She told me I could tell you the story. And in both occasions, there came a point where I just said, I've got to tell you something about it. The relief. Actually, the temptation evaporated very quickly. Once I'd opened it up to God and to her. Why had I spared, why had I not spared myself the pain and been open sooner? Well, because I'm like all of you, I love to cover up. Because opening up seems too scary. 
But of course, David's experience was that when he finally faced reality and opened the dark places of his life to God, then he discovered joy. Because the great thing was that the God he met when he opened up to God was not the, the harsh, finger-wagging, vindictive God, who some of us imagine may be there, but the God who is full of grace and compassion, who meets us in our brokenness and surrounds us with his grace. End of verse 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you can almost feel the pause, can't you? What's going to happen? And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Phew. It's okay. The burden's lifted. It's the joy of that forgiveness that led David to write the psalm, wasn't it? Look how he begins. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. You can feel the weight's lifted off his shoulders, can't you? Those whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirits there is no deceit. How happy they are. What joy for those who know this forgiveness. I think there are three blessings that stand out in the psalm. We'll look mainly at the first and just briefly at the second and third. The first, of course, is the blessing of complete forgiveness in verses 1 to 5. There are actually three words for sin in the the opening verses. The NIV misses one of them. And for each word for sin, there's a corresponding picture of forgiveness. So verse 1, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Transgressions are acts of rebellion. And God forgives them when we bring them to his mercy. The words here actually have the idea of, of carrying them away, of them being lifted up from us. How does God lift our transgressions from us? How did he carry them away? Well, we know as New Testament believers, he did it through the Lord Jesus. He personally carried away our sins in his own body on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24. And then the second word is in the second half of verse 1. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Sins are specific offences. And and you can imagine the list of them written there, can't you? And they're, they're oozing shame and failure when you look at them. And God covers them up. Pays their penalty. Takes away their shame. It's fascinating language, isn't it? We try to deal with sin by covering it up ourselves, and it's always a failure. It never works. But God comes. How? Not by pretense. Not by unreality. He covers them up by by paying their full penalty on the cross. So that the wrath which stands against us because of our sin is lifted. The shame of our rebellion is taken away. We sing it, don't we? This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven. But the cross, our sins covered up. And then the third picture, or the third third word in verse 2. Blessed is the one whose iniquity the Lord doesn't count 
against them. Iniquity is, is perversity. It's the distortion of our nature. Our tendency to choose evil over good. And God isn't counting it against David any longer. Or against us. If we come to the cross in repentance and faith. We're terribly aware, aren't we, of what people think about us. But at the end of the day, there is only one opinion about me and about you that really counts. It's God's opinion. The opinion of our creator. What's his opinion of David? Wretched sinner, murderer, adulterer? No, because of grace. His sin is not counted against. And as New Testament believers, we want to go even one stage further, don't we? If we think of God's opinion of us, true, our sins are not counted against us, but even more glorious, we are counted righteous in Christ. Have you got that? As acceptable to God as his own dear son. That's us in Jesus Christ. Our sins not counted against us. It's not surprising that David said, I'm blessed when encountering such graces. The blessing of forgiveness. You know, some of us, I suspect, have only ever experienced half-hearted forgiveness when we've been sort of forgiven by human beings. Do you know what I mean? Perhaps it was our parents. I'll forgive you this once, but... And I'm counting. You remember that one? Or, I'll forgive you, but... I won't forget. I'll forgive you, but things are never going to be the same after this, you know. Half-hearted forgiveness. But perhaps we sometimes imagine that God's forgiveness is just a little bit like that. Conditional, lukewarm, distant, a, a concession reluctantly squeezed out of a tight-fisted God. Is that how we imagine the forgiveness of God? I know we don't in theory. I know none of our theology says that. But in reality, is that how we imagine it? But the God of the Bible is not tight. He's the God who is rich in mercy. He loves us with great love. His love is sufficient to bring us complete forgiveness. It seems to me that the burden of this psalm is to... To help us understand that this forgiveness is total and unqualified. That because we are forgiven, we are blessed. And it's repeated, we are doubly blessed. Because of the riches of the grace of God. God, I suggest, wants us to feel blessed. He wants us to feel forgiven. Let it not be merely an article of faith that we're forgiven. Let the healing power of that forgiveness permeate to the very depths of who we are. He wants us to feel we're forgiven because Jesus has carried away our sins on the cross. He's covered their shame. He's paid their penalty. We are no longer counted as miserable sinners, but as forgiven children brought home to their father, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the blessing. Of forgiveness. As we share communion this evening, I just want to urge you to dare to believe that God's forgiveness to you is complete and unqualified and healing and transforming and completely sufficient for all that in your and my sinfulness you may bring to the cross this evening.
Who is it that receives this blessing of forgiveness? Not everybody. We're not universalists, are we? It's quite clear who receives it. At the end of verse 2, blessed are those whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit is no deceit. What does that mean? I think it means in whose spirit there's no cover. Those who have stopped acting, those who have stopped pretending, those who are no longer lying to God or themselves, but have opened the dark places of their lives to God, faced their sin and confessed it to him. That's the people who are blessed with this great forgiveness. You see the point? You see the irony? The only way our sins can be covered up is by uncovering them to God and opening them to his grace. It may be painful to do that. But David tells you from his experience that if you do, you are blessed indeed. And from that experience, he makes his appeal to us. Verse 6, therefore, given all this, given what's happened to me, he says, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. And if we hear that call and response, we find that added to the blessing of forgiveness, we receive I was going to call it the second blessing, then I thought you might misunderstand me. But blessing number two, the blessing of protection. Verse six, that everyone who's godly call, uh, pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, you will, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I love these couple of verses. See what David is saying? The God from whom he tried to hide in those awful days has now become his hiding place. The God whom he feared would expose and condemn him now surrounds him with songs of salvation. Have you heard those songs? Have you listened to the songs of salvation? probably familiar with that wonderful verse in Zechariah 3. The Lord, your God, is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing. Songs of salvation. The Father's song. The songs of God over the people he loves and delights in. The songs of God over you and even over me. Even though we sing. And so forth. The God who called David to drop his defences now promises to be his true defender. The blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of protection. It may be that the writer here is talking about how God generally protects us from many kinds of troubles. Doubtless he does. It seems to me that the link with what's gone before is so strong that these, these rising floodwaters there in verse uh, 6 are probably recalling the great uh, flood that Noah experienced, where the waters were an expression of the judgments of God. Just as Noah, who trusted God, was protected from the judgment through the ark, so we are protected from the judgment our sins deserve as we put our trust in Christ. And receive the mercy of God. But there's an urgency here, isn't there? 
This isn't just kind of take it or leave it whenever you feel like it. David is saying, look, let everyone who is godly call to you. Don't hesitate. David's kind of saying, don't do what I did. Don't keep covering up. Didn't do me any good. Won't do you any good. I found wonderful forgiveness. You can too. So pray now. Well, there's the opportunity. I wonder, could it be that some of us, God is calling, even this evening, some of us who, in the kind of goldfish bowl of the pressures of ministry, find that we're frankly living a lie. And maybe God is saying to us, look, you're trying to cover up, but it's time to turn. Time to turn to me. His grace for you now. And it's free. It's wonderful. It's sufficient. It's enough. Stop the cover up. Begin the open up. Come and find forgiveness, healing, restoration, overflowing grace. Is God saying that to you this evening? The God who stands against you in judgment stands also ready to be your protector. And then the third blessing is the blessing of direction, verses 8 and 9. We've had the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of protection, verses 8 and 9, just briefly, the blessing of direction. Because, of course, God doesn't just forgive us and then leave us to wallow in the mess we've been in. The God who forgives gives a new future as well. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. I love those words. <clears throat> Sometimes our model of guidance is very dehumanizing, isn't it? As if it's just God putting us on remote control. Not here. No, I will instruct you and teach you. I'll counsel you and watch over you. It's the wonderful way God guides us by his word and his spirit. Not just issuing instructions from the sky but changing us from the inside so that we know the way to go. But he calls us to be responsive to that guidance. Verse 9, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. I guess there's a bit of, a bit of grit in the way that David said that, because he had needed the bit and bridle treatments, hadn't he, to end his cover-up. You remember the prophet Nathan coming to him with that heart-rending story of the rich man who stole the one little lamb of his poor neighbor. And then those devastating prophetic words as Nathan looks David in the eye and says, you are the man. You're the rich man in the story. This wasn't instruction and guidance and counseling and watching over, was it? This was bit and bridle because the God who loved David loved him so much. He wasn't prepared to let him go. But it doesn't have to be that. He calls us to be responsive to his wisdom, hungry for his direction, which is there for us. And when we discover this great love of God, which meets us in our brokenness, we find forgiveness and joy. Verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. You righteous, sing all you who are upright in heart. But there's a choice with which this psalm confronts us, isn't it? And it's a choice between covering up 
and opening up. The choice between clinging desperately to the darkness or being engulfed and surrounded by the unfailing love of God as we open up to Him. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, what's your choice? Have you given up on cover? Have you begun to open the dark places to God? This evening as we celebrate communion, let all of us open up dark places to God again. Let's go again to the cross where sins are forgiven, where wrath is turned away, where plentiful grace flows from a God who is rich in mercy. As we take bread and wine, let's listen to hear the songs of salvation which the Father sings over his people, over his children. Let's allow their music to bring healing to our brokenness. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord, that his all-sufficient grace may lift us up again. And put the new song in our mouths, the great song, even of this song, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord doesn't count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit, no cover-up, no pretense. Let's pray. We thank you, our dear Father, that you are rich in mercy. Sometimes, Lord, we run the risk of believing our own publicity, taking ourselves too seriously and thinking that we're more important than we really are. The reality is we come to you this evening as sinners who need a saviour, as broken people who need a healer, as thirsty people who need the spirit poured out on us afresh that we might drink deep of living water. We thank you that there is no shortage of supply of grace in you. And we ask that this evening as we share in communion and remember the Lord Jesus that you would bring that grace to us afresh in all its power, in all its healing, in all its liberation. And that you would set us on our feet, rejoicing in forgiveness, knowing the freedom of the gospel, that we might be equipped to serve in our generation. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.